This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 22nd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Christy Curry-Rogers talks about measuring the growth of a baby titanosaur. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on stimulating the brains of cadavers. I was rubbing my hands together (laughs) with glee when I heard about this story. Ooh, a debunking, I thought, and a gross one at that. Dave, what practice were the debunkers targeting in this study? Well, they were debunking two related techniques. One's called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, and then one's called transcranial alternating current stimulation, or TACS. Basically, what these are is applying a mild electric shock to the scalp. And the idea is, or at least what scientists thought happened, is that the shock made its way into the brain, stimulated neurons, and could do a variety of good things like boost mood, alleviate chronic pain, and even make you better at math. (laughs) So the researchers here were like, what's really happening inside the brain? We can't really go in there and look. So they conducted conducted the yeah. study <laughs> nice. um, I see what you did there. <laughs> with multiple cadavers. What did they do with the dead people? Well, they basically did the technique. They put the electrodes on the cadaver's scalp, but they were actually able to get inside the scalp as well to see how much of that electricity actually made its way into the neurons in the brain. And what they found was very, very little makes its way through. And this was with very low currents, the ones that people would typically receive in one of these treatments. What if they upped the current? (laughs) Well, yeah, we're talking about one to two milliamps of current. And just for comparison, uh, if you got hit by a 
stun gun, that's about four milliamps. So not a whole lot of current. So one of the questions is, well, maybe they're not using enough. And actually, the main researcher behind this actually tried it on himself. He zapped his head with five milliamps of current and said it just made him really dizzy. And he wouldn't recommend anybody try that at home. What's the reaction from the brain stimulation community here? Are they upset? Do they feel debunked? <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, first of all, even though about 90% of the current isn't getting through to the brain, at least according to this research, 10% still is. And the researchers say even that 10% could be making a difference. Maybe it isn't causing neurons to fire, as some people had suspected, but maybe it's causing other subtle changes in the brain that are leading to some of these effects effects that many studies have shown actually happen. So their contention is something is happening. Maybe it's just not happening the way that we think it's happening. So is this actually a debunking? Well, let's just say it raises some shocking questions. Next up, we have a story on making lab mice a little more realistic. Lab mice are all the same. At least they're supposed to be. Their similarity and lack of exposure to the outside world provide low background noise and let us pick out important biological signals. But what if the background noise is turned down too low? Maybe some of that noise is important. It turns out, when it comes to the immune system, a little dirt might not hurt. Okay, what's one way to make a mouse dirty? Well, put it next to a dirty mouse. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what researchers did. This is actually a couple studies that went on here, but in the first study, researchers took mice from a pet store, and see so these are our dirty mice <laughs> because they've sort of lived in kind of more random environments. They've been exposed to a lot more dirt and potentially disease, and they put them in a cage with clean mice, with laboratory mice that had been sort of eating the same sterile food, living in the same sterile environment, and they put them together for a couple of months. Did they see a big effect on the immune system of the lab mice when that happened? Well, first of all, a lot of the lab mice died, <laughs> oh. which is kind of sad, but it does show that, you know, they probably were sort of immune compromised because they were probably being exposed to a lot of pathogens they're not used to. Those that survived, however, developed much hardier and much different immune systems, immune systems that the researchers sort of compare it like at first the, the lab mice had immune system kind of like a, a newborn baby, very naive immune system. But after spending some time with the pet store mice, the immune system of the lab mice was a lot more like a human adult. It was just sort of a lot more complicated, a lot more active. A second experiment was trying to be more precise about making the mice right. dirty. What did they do? Right. Instead of just throwing some clean mice into a cage with some dirty mice, they actually infected lab mice with a few pathogens, things like herpes virus, flu virus, even intestinal worms. And the idea was similar. They would said, you know, can we sort of challenge the sort of weak immune systems of these mice with these pathogens and make them hardier, make them a bit more realistic to what we would see with mice in the wild. They actually tested how having a different kind of immune background affected their reaction to a vaccine, right? So that was really interesting because one of the problems that critics have said about laboratory mice is that they're so sterile that when you test things like vaccines in them, the vaccines seemed like they work great. And the question is, would that happen with a dirtier mouse? And and what the researchers found was, at least at first, the laboratory mice that had been given all these other pathogens responded sort of similarly to lab mice to these vaccines. But over time, these mice that had been infected with all these other things actually lost their response to the vaccine, suggesting there are differences in how mice that are exposed to things versus mice that are not exposed to things 
may respond to some of these therapies. If researchers are going to tweak mice this way, they're going to create an immunological background in the lab. Is it going to make it difficult to compare testing from one lab to the other? Yeah, that's what some critics are worried about because you do have these supposed disadvantages with these super sterile lab mice. But as you alluded to earlier, Sarah, the advantages are that everybody's essentially around the world is working with the same mice on the same diet and same conditions. So if one lab sees something, another lab should be able to reproduce it. Now, if you have labs working with all dirty mice, but they're all dirty in their own way, then you can potentially have a lot of problems with reproducibility, with consistency between studies. Lastly, we have a story on monkeys on the move. It's not every day that the history books are rewritten, but I think this next story kind of lives up to the hype. A researcher found seven monkey teeth near the Panama Canal, which did you know is being expanded right now? I did not know I know, right? And now, bam, History is changed forever. Okay, Dave, what's so special about these teeth? Well, just backing up a little bit, (laughs) did you know that North America didn't used to be connected to South America? (laughs) Oh, you mean before the Panama Canal, after the Panama Canal? Well, we're talking millions and millions of years ago. So there was actually this uh, waterway about 160 kilometers wide that separated the two continents. And it's been long thought by researchers that while that waterway was there, Nothing was really getting back and forth, or at least no land animals were getting back and forth between those two continents. And that's part of the reason the study is so cool is because these monkey teeth that were found in the Panama Canal suggest that something did make it across during this time. And that something was a monkey? That something was a monkey. It was a small monkey. Would have looked maybe a little bit like today's capuchin or squirrel monkeys. And how old are these teeth? Well, they were found in a rock that's 21 million years old, suggesting that's about as old as the teeth are. And before that, the earliest evidence for monkeys in Central America was only 5 million years old. That's a really big backup. What about this water that you were talking about? (laughs) How does that fit in with this? Well, that's the question. If they did indeed get from... South America to what is today Panama, how did they get there? And the researchers think they may have rafted there. (laughs) (laughs) What are the rafts going to be made of in this scenario? Well, they would be made, uh, they would kind of be mats made of dirt and vegetation. And it's not so far-fetched because we know that even today, primates can do this. How do they eliminate the idea that there was a temporary land bridge? If there was a land bridge, you would expect a lot more species making their way from South to North America, or at least from South America to Panama. And the researchers don't see this. They're only seeing evidence of this with monkeys right now. So what we have here is a very old monkey moving in a surprisingly early date from South America to Central America. But my question is, why didn't it keep on keeping on and come all the way to North America? Why don't we have North American monkeys? Yeah. Well, um, the thinking is they probably stopped when the good stuff also stopped. I mean, they were looking for maybe very specific fruits, maybe very specific types of trees. And those kinds of things they found in abundance in Panama. If they had traveled further north, they wouldn't have found that stuff and they would have had no reason to keep migrating. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about even how a half degree rise in global temperatures could have dramatic consequences. Also a story about how large earthquakes can trigger volcanoes. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about who is the Michael Jordan of computer science, how a new tool is helping researchers rank 
other researchers. Also a story about the U.S. Senate coming up with an idea to try to make Earth more reflective, speaking of global warming, to try to combat global warming. So make sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. It's rare to find a baby dinosaur, fossilized, obviously. But when one is located, the insights to be gleaned from the bones can be remarkable. I spoke with Christy Curry Rogers about what she learned from the bones of her baby dinosaur, a titanosaur from Madagascar. Okay, so titanosaurs as a group of dinosaurs include the largest animals ever to walk on land. So things like Argentinosaurus found in South America. But they also include some really interesting animals that have kind of a reversion to dwarf size. And this dinosaur, Rapetosaurus, is actually kind of a regular-sized long-necked dinosaur, still really massive, probably somewhere around 40 to 50 feet long at adult size, an herbivore with a long, slender neck and tail, you know, walking on four columnar legs. Where did these particular dinosaurs live? These lived in Madagascar, uh, which was already an island. It had been an island for about 20 million years. They came from sediments that are 67 million years old, the very end of the age of dinosaurs. And they came from a particular geological unit that we call the Maveron Formation. And that formation is particularly interesting because it's clear that it was a drought-prone, stressful Mm. ecosystem. The study here is based around a fossilized find. What materials did you have to work with? Baby dinosaur bones are pretty rare. There are not that many dinosaurs that are at this tiny size known from you know anywhere in the world. I think that's probably because a dead baby dinosaur would be a single bite <laughs> for a big carnivorous dinosaur in the Cretaceous. Right. So we were incredibly lucky because we had quite a few well-preserved limb bones, tail vertebrae, and hip elements all from this single individual that were recovered from a single horizon, so one small geological unit at one of our fossil localities in Madagascar. What can you tell from a sample of this type, part of a dead baby dinosaur, about the life, its life and its growth? So one of the things that we we began with was just trying to figure out who it was. So that's kind of our first order of business. And it was pretty fun to figure out. We looked at the anatomy of each bone. Uh, We took tons of measurements. And we realized that we had no duplication of elements, which means that even though we had two shin bones, we had one from the left side and one from the right side, but not two from the left side. And so from there, we were able to determine that this very small baby dinosaur was a baby of a member of a well-known species from Madagascar, a dinosaur called Rapetosaurus. That's its genus name. And from there, we decided that we wanted to to try to understand what was going on for this little baby dinosaur 67 million years ago. And so we began by thin sectioning and CT scanning those bones. Once we had them identified, we wanted to go inside to try to understand more about the growth history of this little dinosaur. When would you say little baby dinosaur, how little is little? Uh, so this dinosaur, it was probably just a few weeks old when it died. Uh, we determined that by looking at bone histology. So basically the patterns of blood supply 
cell structure and the sizes of those bones under a microscope. And we know that it was probably around 35 centimeters high at the back. And just to give you an idea, that's knee high. <laughs> it's basically knee high. And we know it weighed somewhere between about 50 and 80 pounds, probably actually on the low end because of the way that this little dinosaur died. Right. And, and what do you know about its death? So from looking at these bones under the microscope, we were able to see the ends of the long bones, which include something called calcified cartilage. And that's a part of the way that bones elongate in animals that are growing up. And the calcified cartilage in this little dinosaur, in all of its limb bones, had kind of an unusual morphology or shape. Uh, it was very sharp and stout. And that's common in animals that are nearing their adult size, mm -hmm. but this is an animal that still has 90% of its growth to acquire, even so little. And so we took a look at other reasons that that thinning cartilage might be present. And it turns out that in animals in the modern ecosystem that are going through starvation, an interval of starvation, they also have this sort of unusual pattern of very thin calcified cartilage epiphyses or the ends of their long bones. And it's sort of interesting because in the ancient Madagascar ecosystem, we have really strong evidence that drought mortality is what is driving the fossil record that we have in this Maveron formation ecosystem. And so this was a baby dinosaur that hatched from an egg in a really hard time for animals in Madagascar. And unfortunately, it didn't make it through that mortality filter of drought. Wow. Well, we talked about the size of the dinosaur at its death. How big was it at birth or when it hatched? And, and so basically, how long did it take to go from size A to size B? Yeah, one of, the, one of the really cool parts of our study, I think, is that looking at the insides of bones often gives you so much more insight than just studying them on the outside. And when we thin-sectioned and CT-scanned these bones, we were able to see a tissue difference very close to the center of these little long bones that is something that is similar to what we call hatching lines or neonatal lines in modern animals. And so this is a, a line or a change in bone tissue microstructure that records a pause in growth after hatching, immediately after hatching or birth. Usually animals, I mean, if you think about a modern baby animal, there's kind of, even a modern baby human, you know, growth usually slows. There's actually sometimes a drop in body weight mm -hmm. right after birth as the, the little individual recovers from the work of coming out of an egg or being born. And so we were able to see that little hatching line in these Rapetosaurus bones. And that line combined with this very similar bone shape throughout life history in Rapetosaurus gives us insight into how long those bones were and how sort of what their circumference was so that we're able to determine what the body mass of a hatchling and what its height was. So at hatching, Rapetosaurus would have been about ankle high and weighed about seven pounds, five to seven pounds, somewhere in that range. Like a chihuahua. Kind of like a chihuahua, yeah. So going from chihuahua size to golden retriever sized in just a few weeks. Wow. And they're just, they're herbivores, so they're eating a lot of whatever the vegetation is around them that they can actually get. Exactly. Is there anything else that you can tell from the specimen that we haven't talked about already? Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about um, bone histology and CT scanning. 
And when you're looking at bones under a microscope, there are lots of characteristics that you're observing. You're seeing blood vascular patterns. Of course, the blood vessels aren't preserved anymore, but you can see the holes where those vessels and, and fatty tissues would have been when the animal was alive. Those things are related to relative growth rates in modern animals. So we have some really good comparative data with modern vertebrates that we can use. But we also see evidence of bone remodeling. And this is a process through which your bones are constantly undergoing change to redistribute bone mineral to new places. And we see evidence of remodeling in this very, very small animal, which is one of the other signs that this little titanosaur was precocial, which is a word that means it doesn't require a lot of parental care. It's mobile from the moment that it's born, kind of like, you know, a cow or a horse. There's parental care in those animals, but they're up and moving right away after birth. Right. And they are precocial, they don't need parental care, but they also grow what you call isometrically. Can you talk about what that means? Right. So isometric means that the shapes of their bones stay consistent throughout their lifespan. So we don't know that their entire skeleton or their soft tissues grew isometrically, but their limb bones are literally like little miniature versions of much, much bigger Rapetosaurus specimens. And so when you see that kind of isometry of limb proportions in modern animals, we know that that's partly the result of something called ontogenetic canalization, which basically means that little animals look like big animals. And it's something that's really common among precocial animals that don't rely a lot on parental care. And so that's one of the things that we use to create this argument for precociality or precocity in this little titanosaur. Can you give an example of a modern animal that has this type of growth? Yeah, a lot of animals actually have isometry in their limb bones. So even things like elephants, cattle, and horses, there have been papers published by other authors that suggest that these bones grow isometrically. And interestingly, that means that the little tiny representatives of these species, the babies of these species, have a much more varied locomotor repertoire than the adults of their species do. So you can kind of imagine something like an adult elephant has kind of three common gaits. It can have a slow plod, it can have a walk, and it can have a trot. But if you've ever watched a baby elephant, they're far more diverse in their ability to move around because their bones are essentially predicting their future adult proportions. And so they are much, much more flexible and mobile because they're dealing with far less body mass when they're small. Oh, really interesting. Is there anything else we can learn about titanosaurs or dinosaurs of this time, you know, judging from this type of growth happening in this particular baby? I think it really gives us a picture of diversity in dinosaurs. You know, we we have found baby dinosaurs of duck-billed species and theropod species, and there does seem to be parental care in some of those kinds of dinosaurs. And so it's nice to add in another dinosaur that is different. And I think that that's something to always keep in mind when you think about dinosaurs and our big conclusions. Mm -hmm. They're an incredibly diverse group of organisms with a long and important history on this planet. And it's probably true that diversity is the key yeah. <laughs> to their success and that they did a lot of different kinds of things. So even though this sauropod is precocial, I don't know that that means that all sauropod dinosaurs were precocial. I think it's something we can investigate more as we move forward. Great. How do you know that this is a rapetosaur? If it's a different size, for example, than all the other dinosaurs. <laughs> That's so such a good question. Seen. So that is what is crazy about these specimens. So we know that this is Rapetosaurus because the bones look exactly like 
big Rapetosaurus bones. And so we've been collecting, as a part of this Majunga Basin project, long-term research project in the Maveron Formation in Madagascar for 20 years. And we've got thousands of Rapetosaurus bones at much bigger sizes. So we have an ontogenetic series from, you know, pretty mid-sized juveniles all the way up to fully grown adults with five-foot-long femora, regular-sized sauropod bones. And if you look at any of those bones, they all share the same proportional differences. And so when I first saw these bones, I was like, wow, there's a little tiny Rapetosaurus because it looks exactly like the big ones <laughs> that I've spent my whole career studying. Well, speaking of when you first saw these bones, there's an interesting backstory there. Can you talk about how you came across them? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of research with bone histology and lots of different kinds of animals. It's something that I'm really interested in. And I was actually doing a different project in our Madagascar fossil collection, and I was pulling out drawers of kind of poorly preserved or, you know, miscellaneous crocodile and turtle bones for a distinctive project from this one. And as I was pulling open these drawers, I kept finding these really tiny <laughs> sauropod bones. And I recognize them immediately because I study sauropods as my primary specialty. And so it was easy for me to say, wow, there's a sauropod fibula. What's it, what's it doing in this crocodile drawer? <laughs> but it was because crocodiles in Madagascar in the late Cretaceous were incredibly diverse. So there are crocodiles that we think ate plants and crocodiles that were sort of coyote-like and running on the oh. surface of the earth, giant crocodiles. So the crocodile group there is really crazy. And a lot of times when you see bones in the field and you're not quite sure what they are, we sort of assume, oh, it might be a crocodile. <laughs> and so I think our, our preparators, you know, finding these little tiny bones that looked sort of weird, just thought, okay, I'll put them in this miscellaneous section and the crocodile people will be able to figure out who they belong to. And so I was looking for bones to thin section and I kept popping up with these little sauropod bones that to me were immediately recognizable. So I pulled them all out and separated them and realized that they were all from a single individual. And a little detective work in our collections records revealed that they were all collected at about the same time from the same horizon. And because of the lack of duplication of those elements, we knew they all belonged to one individual. How long have they been in the drawer for, do you know? They were collected and put in the drawers probably over a period of just a few years, but they could have been there from, you know, I think the earliest ones that we have that are numbered are probably from collections made in 1998. Wow. Christy, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Christy Curry-Rogers is a vertebrate paleontologist at McAllister College. You can read more and see pictures of these fossils in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, 
is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.